Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of physical and emotional abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was cold that night, but for Jerusalem, that wasn't particularly unusual. In the desert, the temperature always took a nosedive the moment that the sun went down. In the quiet Orthodox neighborhood of Sanhedria, people were settling in for a night indoors. But as one woman approached her window to close the shutter against the cold, she spotted some strange movement in the dark. There were people on the roof of the Be'er Miriam Seminary. The building was nothing more than a shadow across the street, and the observer strained to see. As her eyes adjusted to the dark, she could hardly believe what she saw. It was the young female students at the seminary walking across the uneven roof. The shocked observer watched with confusion as the small group of darkened figures tiptoed through the night and then, one by one, laid down on the cold surface. Under the leadership of the mysterious rabbi, Aharon Ramati, the seminary had already developed a worrying reputation. Many noticed that parents had trouble reaching their daughters once they joined. On that cold night, as the small group of girls lay motionless on the darkened roof, it became clearer than ever. Something was very, very wrong. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week in a one-part episode, we'll focus on Aharon Ramati and the Be'er Miriam Seminary in Jerusalem. For years, Ramati evaded legal action under the pretense that his school was just like all the others, However, behind closed doors, things were anything but ordinary. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Institutions can add value to a society. They provide stability and tradition. However, sometimes the same process that makes them a foundational part of a culture can be exploited by those looking to cause harm. Jerusalem is a profoundly religious city. Apart from being a site of spiritual pilgrimage for multiple faiths, it is also the destination for religious education within the Jewish tradition. Jerusalem houses dozens of religious schools that teach young Jewish people about the Torah and the traditions of Jewish life, These programs are usually one to two years in length, and students often attend after graduating high school. Like any private schools, they come with tuition costs. According to an article in Lilith magazine, Jewish women's schools called seminaries often demand $20,000 for a 10-month stay. Students are also separated by gender. Men enroll in a yeshiva, while women attend a midrashah. For many people, this kind of education is a necessary component in becoming a well-rounded member of Jewish society in Israel. But not every school is the same. 
For some practitioners of Judaism, specifically a group called the Haredim and referred to in popular media as ultra-Orthodox Jews, an ordinary midrashah may not be conservative enough, and that's where certain seminaries come in. A seminary made specifically for the Haredi community is the most conservative option for female students who wish to attend these religious programs. Structurally, they're the same as the rest of the religious schools. What differs is the subject matter. In seminaries, young women may study the Torah or Talmud, like their male counterparts. But the curriculum might also emphasize volunteer work, job training, and the traditional female role of the domestic caregiver. The focus of the seminary depends on the particular school. Some more conservative seminaries prioritize values over religious texts, instructing their students to view modesty and child-rearing expertise as essential qualities that they must bring into their adult lives. Seminaries are a ubiquitous part of life in Jerusalem, especially in Orthodox communities. So it was hardly news when Be'er Miriam Seminary opened its doors to eager female students in 2009. Many locals had already heard about the charismatic rabbi in charge. Aharon Ramati had already gained a small following of women before forming Be'er Miriam in his small Jerusalem home. Those who interacted with him said he seemed charming, intelligent, and above all, mysterious. Curiously, there isn't much public information about Aharon Ramati's life before Be'er Miriam. But photographs suggest that he was middle-aged when the school opened. And in the mid-2010s, he was in his 60s. Ramadi certainly looked the part of a wise teacher with a full, graying beard and kind eyes. He seemed equal parts paternal and disarming. For parents who were looking for a new seminary to send their daughters to, Ramadi appeared like an acceptable option. Parents had no reason to believe this school would be any different than the rest. This cultural familiarity with religious schools made it all too easy for a Haron Ramati to take advantage of those who joined Be'er Miriam. The cultural foundation was already there. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Rachel Bernstein, a therapist who treats ex-cult members, explained to Insider that cults promise three things to their prospective members, a chance to better themselves, a sense of community, and freedom from vulnerability. These three things fit easily within a positive religious tradition, and Aharon Ramadi counted on that tradition to make it easier for him to bring young women into his home. To the public, Ramadi promoted Be'er Miriam Seminary as nothing more than a religious school for Orthodox girls, just like all the other ones in Jerusalem. But behind closed doors, something very different went on. In the beginning, Be'er Miriam Seminary housed 12 female students within a Haron Ramadi's home. Two small bedrooms served as the sleeping quarters for these women. Bunk beds and hastily made cots took up the entire space leaving no room for any semblance of privacy. This small group lived and studied in a world completely dictated by Aharon Ramadi. In some ways, this wasn't particularly unusual. Seminary is a relatively cloistered experience. Students want to avoid distraction during their study of Orthodox tradition. But quickly, Aharon Ramadi twisted that structure to suit his own interests. 
Seminary life is usually organized around daily lectures about the Torah called shiurim. This is where female students learn about their role as Orthodox women and the values that they must uphold in their lives. The head rabbi is always the one to deliver the shiur. And in the most conservative pockets of Orthodox society, a rabbi is always a man. Rabbinical authority is never questioned in this kind of environment. Lectures are not a place for debate or disagreement. They're entirely structured as an educational tool for female students, a way to learn about their spiritual duties from an expert. This baked-in authority played in Aharon Ramadi's favor. Daily lectures were the perfect way to disseminate his extremist views to a group of students who were more than willing to accept them. And in the cramped confines of his Jerusalem apartment, Ramadi began crafting a web of control around his 12 female students. During his daily lectures, Ramadi explained to his students that women must reject all of their desires. Any personal enjoyment in this life would lead to punishment in the next, and any disobedience could bring about horrific consequences. Here, Ramadi didn't mince words. He treated any act of insubordination as a guarantee of spiritual vengeance by God himself. According to Ramadi, God would inflict serious illness or physical harm to any woman who dared question the teachings at Be'er Miriam. To protect his followers from suffering this terrible fate, Aharon Ramadi seized control of every element of their lives. He didn't even let his pupils leave the seminary without his permission. Women were only allowed to leave for work at service jobs in the city that Ramadi himself demanded they find. And when these women returned to the seminary, they were expected to hand over all of their earnings to their leader. From the beginning, Ahabron Ramadi held complete financial control over his students. In addition to taking these wages, each of his students presumably paid Ramadi a tuition fee for the privilege of attending the school. This was actually common for most seminaries. But like everything else that Aharon Ramadi did at Be'er Miriam, he used this standard practice as a cloak for more manipulative behavior. Ramadi likely taught his followers that their financial dedication helped to keep them in God's favor. And Ramadi's level of control over his students extended to their physical health. Ramadi preached staunchly against traditional medicine and refused to allow any of his pupils to go to the doctor without his permission. Instead, he instructed some of the young women to pour boiling lead into a basin of water, a ceremony he claimed would banish the ayin hara, or evil eye, that caused their ailment. Unfortunately, Ramadi's command put the women in danger. Lead gas is extremely toxic, and direct exposure can greatly affect kidney function, the immune system, and reproductive development. His restrictive techniques were always couched in religious language. Ramadi spoke in a way that made the threat of spiritual vengeance feel terrifyingly real. And that only made his pupils more willing to do anything that he asked. During his daily shiurim, Ramadi began warning his students about the Haredi society outside of the seminary walls. He claimed those people lived in sin and allowed themselves to be dictated by their desires. Ramadi explained that those not in Be'er Miriam were beyond saving. He said they would suffer in Gehinnom, the afterlife destination for the wicked. But Ramadi didn't stop there. 
He urged his students to cut off contact with anyone who refuted these teachings. In some cases, Ramadi even suggested that his students take out restraining orders against their parents if those relatives proved especially difficult to shake off. Soon, Ramadi made this practice a common element of life at Bayer Maryam Seminary. Women entered the compound and after a few months, they cut their parents out of their lives. According to an article in the Israeli news source Ynet, one mother tried a more active approach to reach her daughter. Late one evening in the winter of 2013, she drove to the apartment building that housed the seminary, hoping to convince her daughter to leave the school and come home. While the rest of the family waited in the car, this mother walked up to the entrance of the facility. But as she lifted her hand to knock on the door, her daughter appeared. Please, the mother begged, we love you, come with us. But in that moment, the woman realized that the daughter she thought she knew had already turned into someone entirely different. The young woman looked upon her mother in disgust. She screamed at the top of her lungs, get out of here, I don't want to see you. Many families watched helplessly as their daughters isolated themselves further. After all, the women of Bayer Maryam Seminary were just that, women over the age of 18. They could legally stay as long as they wanted. With no power to stop their children, these parents were left scared, bitter, and furious. Years passed, and Aharon Ramadi's group swelled. By 2013, Ramadi had an estimated 30 women living in the same small two-bedroom apartment, sharing twin-sized mattresses and bunks, and eating poorly refrigerated food. As the student body grew, so did Ramadi's sense of invulnerability. It appears that Ramadi thrived on the control he held over these women. Families, feeling that they didn't have any other options, began protesting in the city center. They demanded that something be done to stop Ramadi. But when Ramadi was asked directly about these accusations, he continued insisting that Bayer Maryam was just another orthodox seminary. The public, however, was no longer fooled. As the number of students grew, so did the number of terrified parents. They weren't going to allow Ramadi to continue. Something had to be done, and fast. But accomplishing that proved more difficult than anyone expected. Coming up, Aharon Ramadi tightens his grip on the seminary and the Jerusalem police find an important loophole. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. By 2013, self-proclaimed rabbi Ahabron Ramadi's Bayer Maryam Seminary had been open for four years. In that short time, Ramadi had grown his base of devoted followers to around 30 women. With this influx of students, he relocated the group into a compound in another part of Jerusalem. This new seminary looked like a fort with cement walls and hardly any windows. 
and the few windows that were there were so small that they hardly let any light into the cramped rooms inside. But Ramadi lived in a separate apartment in the second building of the compound. He shared this nicer space with a small group of his favorite students. There isn't much information about the interior of this other building or what activities took place inside, but Ramadi gave more attention to those most devoted followers. Unfortunately, this sudden move posed a new problem for an increasing number of worried parents. They now had no idea where their daughters were, and more young women were joining the seminary all the time. This increasing number of students was largely due to Ramadi's focus on recruitment. However, he didn't do the work himself. Instead, the senior, loyal members of the seminary went out into the community. Ramadi sent them to other religious seminars or lectures in Jerusalem. There, they sought out vulnerable young women who they thought might be convinced into joining Be'er Miriam. The senior members described Be'er Miriam as just another seminary, but with a particularly exceptional rabbi, a man who could change lives. Once convinced, these recruits would meet Ahabron Ramadi in his apartment. Ramadi doted on these new members and praised their choice of coming to Be'er Miriam. He introduced them to the seminary in the context of his innermost circle of members. Ramadi promised the new members that they too could be a part of this special, intimate group. In a move that might have appealed to those on the fence, Ramadi encouraged his older recruits to bring their children with them, something uncommon for seminaries. Across the board, Ramadi made it seem like life at Be'er Miriam was pleasant, fulfilling, and spiritually gratifying. And in no time, Be'er Miriam Seminary's numbers grew. But these new members quickly found out that things inside the seminary weren't at all how they seemed. The kind, doting version of Aharon Ramadi was quickly replaced with a leader who appeared all too willing to punish any woman who dared to disagree with him. And more often than not, his newest members were the women most likely to debate him during the Shiurim. Instead of expelling them immediately, Ramadi isolated them. He placed these unruly students in the building furthest away from his own. There, women were subjected to the dismal living conditions they hadn't seen on their first visit. Cramped, windowless rooms and dirty mattresses. Through this isolation, Ramadi made it clear to these students that their only hope of acceptance was to appease him through complete devotion. Most of these women were not kicked out of the seminary and didn't choose to leave on their own. If anything, these punishments only made their desire to remain even stronger. By the time any student began receiving punishments, she'd fully adapted to the belief system Aharon Ramadi created. She likely thought that Be'er Miriam provided the only chance of salvation. Any punishment seemed worth the promise of eventually returning to the fold. Be'er Miriam Seminary had quickly become what is known by cult researchers as a high-control group, where a leader has power over nearly every element of their followers' lives. Florida-based psychiatrist Dr. Sean Paul explained that leaders of high-control groups urge their believers to sever all ties to the outside world and dedicate all their time and money to the group and its mission. In any high control group, it's hard for the members to identify this troubling structure. 
Dr. Paul explained, it's hard to see it for what it is when you're deeply enmeshed in it daily. Because most of Ramadi's followers had isolated themselves from any outside influence for so long, they were completely at the mercy of his demands. Ramadi's strategy of control by humiliation was as efficient as it was destructive. Infractions as small as going to the doctor could come with terrible punishments. According to the Jerusalem Post, Ramadi instructed his unruly students to place their fingers in an open flame, screaming as their skin bubbled and blistered. Ramadi said this was meant to remind them of what torment felt like. Ramadi often employed more senior members of the group, including his own wife, to carry out these punishments, further showing his victims that there was no chance of camaraderie or safety among the other women. And all of this only made his followers more reliant on and deferential to him for fear of further punishment. Ramadi also punished members by forcing them to sleep outside on the roof of the seminary, regardless of weather or temperature. But unlike much of the abuse that took place inside Be'er Miriam, this act of cruelty was visible to anyone in the neighborhood, and that quickly became a problem for Ramadi. As Be'er Miriam's seminary gained followers, it also garnered more attention from the outside world. By 2015, a growing number of desperate parents formed protests in the city, demanding that the Jerusalem police do something to stop Ramadi from taking in more women. Many parents told authorities of the frightening scene they witnessed when trying to visit their daughters at the seminary. Dozens of women sleeping in one room, unsanitary living conditions, poorly refrigerated food. Parents weren't the only ones who began voicing their concerns. Other Orthodox rabbis warned young women against joining Be'er Miriam. At some point, the city sent members of the Ministry of Health to investigate the reports of unsanitary living conditions at Be'er Miriam, expecting to find evidence of the descriptions given by concerned parents. But when they arrived, they came upon something else. Two women greeted the officials at the door and listened politely as the officials explained why they were there. But you must be mistaken, one of the women said. This isn't a seminary. The women said the compound was merely an apartment that a few women were living in together. The officers didn't know what to do. They weren't supposed to enter a private residence. So they left. The Orthodox community was shocked. They watched with newfound hopelessness as Abrahon Ramadi continued operating out of his so-called private residence. From 2013 to 2015, the Jerusalem police and Be'er Miriam Seminary did this strange dance. The government would attempt to investigate, only to find themselves blocked by another legal issue. Meanwhile, Aharon Ramati cemented his grip on his growing group of female followers. The law made it extremely difficult to take action against Aharon Ramati. In Israel, there was no legal definition of what constitutes a dangerous cult and there was no law declaring that such a cult must shut down once discovered. Instead, the Jerusalem police needed to find tax fraud, money laundering, or violations of health and safety regulations. Finally, in 2015, as pressure mounted from the Orthodox community, the authorities struck gold. They discovered that the seminary, in its new locations, was stealing gas from another building this finally gave them enough to search the premises. 
On May 3rd, a group of police officers entered Bay Air Maryam in the Sanhedria neighborhood. Inside, they found a miserable scene. Dirty mattresses littered the floor, surrounded by piles of clothes. The hallways were flanked with plastic lockers and smelled strongly of mildew. Many of the students were present during the raid and watched with disgust as the police rummaged through their things. But strangely, the officers found no children. There had been reports of children living in the cramped confines of the seminary, and their absence seemed extremely suspicious. Officials suspected that someone had warned Ramadi of the coming raid, but at that moment they had no proof, so the search continued. It didn't take long for the police to confirm that the gas line heating the building was stolen. That, coupled with the dismal living conditions inside the seminary, allowed the authorities to take action. The police arrested Aharon Ramadi and detained six women for questioning. The charges placed against Ramadi ranged from gas theft and financial fraud to health code violations. They also uncovered documents that showed Ramadi had pocketed his students' wages. Still, it seemed that no members of Be'er Miriam were willing to speak against Aharon Ramadi, despite the growing evidence that he had caused harm. Later that month, authorities presented Ramadi's case before a judge. Several parents testified, restating their avid concern for the safety of their daughters. Many government ministries, such as social services and income tax investigators, showed their findings. According to their evidence, Ramadi had committed financial fraud and forced his so-called students to live in disgusting living conditions. For the ultra-Orthodox Haredi community, all of this information seemed to pave a clear path to conviction. But within a matter of days, their hopes were dashed once again. The lawyer for the defense, Itamar Ben-Gavir, painted Ramadi in an all-too-familiar light. He explained to the judge that Ramadi was nothing more than a devout Orthodox rabbi who had made no profit from his work at Be'er Miriam. Ben-Gavir explained that this man only taught out of love for the Jewish people. This defense was surprisingly effective. From the beginning, Ramadi had aligned himself with the larger Haredi community, even if he condemned it behind closed doors. And here, this lie finally paid off. After a short trial, the judge delivered a shocking sentence. Abrahon Ramadi was placed under house arrest and barred from teaching at Be'er Miriam Seminary for 70 days, or until an indictment was filed. In the meantime, it seems that the Be'er Miriam Seminary could continue operating without Ramadi. After all that, Ramadi got nothing more than a slap on the wrist. In no time, he would be back, with full control over a group of women who would subject themselves to any form of punishment to appease him. Coming up, the police search for a new, powerful way to take down Haron Ramadi once and for all. Now back to the story. After his much-anticipated 2015 trial, Self-proclaimed rabbi Aharon Ramadi only had to wait 70 days before he could return to his devoted followers. For the families who testified and the many others who had waited in anxious silence, this verdict was a stab through the heart. 
These parents wanted their daughters to come home and had worked tirelessly to force the Jerusalem police to do something to help. But now it was more apparent than ever, the law wasn't on their side. Ramadi's 70-day sentence came and went, and no indictment was ever filed. Once his waiting period was finished, Ramadi was free to leave his house and continue his work. He returned to his beloved followers a hero, ready to pick up right where he left off. Around the time of the investigation, the Be'er Miriam Seminary had moved to yet another new location, settling in the Bukharim Quarter in the center of Jerusalem. This compound looked nearly the same as the old one, and just like before, the living conditions were abysmal. At this point, around 50 women lived and worked at Be'er Miriam, which had made the already cramped living quarters even more uncomfortable. Dozens of women slept in a single, windowless room, jockeying for a space on twin-sized mattresses. But Ramadi's devout followers didn't seem to see these living conditions as a problem. Therapist Rachel Bernstein explained to Refinery29 that many people remain in cults because of the myth of scarcity. Followers are led to believe that their only chance of salvation is through the cult and its leaders' teachings, making it all the more impossible to leave. Bernstein wrote, if you can only get it here, there's a much bigger draw and there's a much bigger dependence. This allowed Ramadi's followers to look past the poor living conditions within Be'er Miriam. To them, this sacrifice likely meant they were living without personal pleasures and would therefore be saved. For the students at Be'er Miriam Seminary, their guaranteed salvation was worth the discomfort of living in squalor. After Ramadi's triumphant return to Be'er Miriam, his strict teachings continued a path of abuse and intentional neglect. But now, the punishment he delivered wasn't only to the women. Over the years, Ramadi had encouraged his students to bring their children to live at the seminary with them, all the while keeping the family secret from the outside world. He had successfully hidden the children during the 2015 raid, but that was a close call. It was unusual for a seminary to house children, as most seminaries cater to young, unmarried women without kids, and Ramadi knew it. Despite the risks, Ramadi made a point to make his new members feel safe bringing their children to Be'er Miriam. He even had a kindergarten constructed at the innermost building of the new Be'er Miriam compound. And after 2015, dozens of children lived at the seminary. But it didn't take long for Ramadi to treat them just as poorly as their mothers. Children at Be'er Miriam were routinely separated from their mothers and subjected to physical abuse. It isn't clear what behavior earned these children their punishments, but this practice became as common as any other abuse within the seminary walls. And just like other forms of punishment, this treatment was rarely refused by Ramadi students. The risk was too great. Women were still being forced to sleep outside in the snow for small acts of disobedience. Ramadi had complete control of his followers, but apparently wasn't content with the small number. Despite public outrage against him, Ramadi continued sending out senior members of the seminary in search of new recruits. As always, these women painted Be'er Miriam as a regular seminary, but with a leader who was far better than the rest. But after the 2015 trial, it became harder to convince women to join. 
At this point, the anger against Ramadi had grown well beyond a small group of concerned parents. In Orthodox society, Ahabron Ramadi's name became synonymous with cult leader. The Be'er Miriam recruiters did sometimes find some women curious enough to join the seminary, but they proved harder to control. As always, Ramadi relegated them to the furthest dormitory, isolating them in poor conditions. But even this didn't seem to be enough to bring these students around to his teachings. Eventually, these more vocal women left the seminary. Immune to Ramadi's convictions and shocked by the living conditions inside, and once a few started to leave, more followed, and that became a problem for Ramadi. In the past, it had been nearly impossible to find a former student of Be'er Miriam Seminary who was willing to testify against Aharon Ramadi. But by 2019, things started looking very different. Women began speaking out about their brief stays at Be'er Miriam Seminary telling police about the harrowing experience of studying under Aharon Ramadi, one woman who chose the pseudonym Maya in a January 2020 interview with Ynet News, detailed the abusive language that the rabbi frequently used with his students. Maya said she frequently disagreed with Ramadi. She explained to the journalist, he warned me if I committed any offense, God would destroy me. She also confirmed that Ramadi chose favorites, sequestering himself with a small group of women inside his at-home seminary. It was unclear what went on between Ramadi and these star students, but Maya suggested that he may have had a sexual relationship with his favorites. So far, there's no concrete evidence to prove that. Maya and many other women also described the financial control that Aharon Ramadi had over his students. Multiple former pupils said that the conditions at Bayer Miriam were slave-like, where students were forced to work menial jobs and give all of their wages to Ramadi himself. These testimonies served multiple purposes. First, these were abuse allegations, something that the authorities hadn't been able to find in 2015. They rekindled a sense of urgency within the already furious Haredi community and put immense pressure on the police to begin a new investigation into Aharon Ramadi. Secondly, these testimonies demolished any possible suggestion that Be'er Miriam was a normal seminary. It had been easy for Aharon Ramadi to lean on that defense in 2015, when his students were willing to support him. But as more women came forward to speak out against abuse they suffered at Be'er Miriam, that facade crumbled. In late 2019, Jerusalem police opened a new, undercover investigation into Be'er Miriam. They confirmed that Ramadi would coerce his members into isolating themselves from their family members. All the while, more women came forward to share their stories. In a matter of months, the police collected 103 statements from former members. And by January 2020, they had enough evidence to take action. The second raid was no different from the one conducted five years before. Police arrived at Be'er Miriam and rushed through its cramped interior, tramping over dirty blankets and hastily discarded items of clothing. They arrested a familiar cast of characters, eight women, all senior members of the seminary, and Ahabron Ramati. For the self-proclaimed rabbi, this investigation was no less absurd than the last. 
he told news outlets a familiar story. He simply encouraged his students to study the Torah, and these charges were an obstruction of orthodox teachings. He lamented in his statement to journalists, they are just searching for headlines. This is nothing. For them, anything to do with the ultra-orthodox world is a cult. As always, Ramadi tried to use the Haredi community as a shield for his abuse. But this time, things were different. With over 100 women willing to speak up, there was hope that their courageous testimony might bring about his downfall. On April 23, 2020, authorities indicted Aharon Ramadi on multiple charges of abuse. It's unclear what became of the women who were also arrested alongside him, but it's likely that they were each eventually released on house arrest. For now, this is where all reports about Aharon Ramadi end. After April 2020, nothing has been published about him or Be'er Miriam Seminary. It's unclear when Ramadi's trial will begin or where Aharon Ramadi currently is. After the thrill of the investigation, the 103 testimonies given to police and months of surveillance, we are left with a deafening silence. And now there are still more questions than answers. No articles about the second raid suggest anything about the current status of the seminary. From where we sit, far outside Haredi society in Jerusalem, it's hard to tell if it closed or relocated to yet another part of Jerusalem. As far as we know, the Air Miriam Seminary is still operating without its beloved leader. Fifty women or so could still be living there, sleeping together on bunk beds in poorly heated rooms. And just like everyone else, all they can do is sit and wait. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Cults was written by Georgia Hampton, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.